This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Dahlia. Gabriel, Dahlia, are you feeling romantic? You've got roses in the background, well, to be fair. I know, that's just to, you know, like a mood, like mood set design. You know, Navarra's budget, thanks to all of you guys, has has increased. <laughs> and so I can have, you know, ho- holiday-themed uh, design in my background. So, you know, your money's being spelt, spent well. <laughs> that wasn't a gift from your doting partner. <laughs> well, what can I say? <laughs> oh, look at you. Um, so smug, isn't she? Uh, I hope you've got, I hope someone's bought you some roses at home. Uh, I don't have anything behind me. Coming up later tonight, couriers across Britain have tonight gone on strike over pay. The UK press are in a full moral panic over the Labour Party and accusations of anti-Semitism. I almost feel nostalgic. And we speak to an international criminal lawyer about how national courts are taking on board the ICJ's ruling about Israel's potential genocide. First story. The world's attention is currently focused on the humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza's southern city of Rafah. Um, But just further north in Khan Yunis, the territory's last functioning hospital has also been under Israeli fire for days. Around 8,000 people are reported to be sheltering inside Nasser Hospital with limited access to food, water and medical supplies. People venturing out for supplies have been killed by IDF snipers. Here, this Palestinian tries to retrieve the body of a boy who's been shot just outside the gates to the compound. The Gazan Health Ministry says 10 people have been shot inside the compound in recent days. Israel has ordered the evacuation of the hospital, saying that everyone, including patients and medical staff, should leave. And, taking whatever they can carry, Palestinians have now begun to flee the compound under threat of gunfire. They've been told to move to, yes, you guessed it, Rafa, where almost one and a half million displaced Palestinians are now crowded on the Egyptian border. Even there, of course, Israel continues to mount airstrikes against the civilian population. At least 67 people were killed in a bombing raid earlier this week, and Palestinians have described living in, quote, unbelievable fear as Israel prepares to launch a ground operation on Gaza's southernmost tip. The threat of a full-blown assault on Rafah has international agencies very worried. UN humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths said this, the scenario we have long dreaded is unraveling at alarming speed. Today, I'm sounding the alarm once again. Military operations in Rafah could lead to a slaughter in Gaza. They could also leave an already fragile humanitarian operation at death's door. Also sounding the alarm are several nation states citing the situation in Rafa. Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has requested the EU Commission review whether Israel is complying with human rights obligations. Ireland's Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has also made this request and told Ireland's parliament that Israel has become, quote, blinded by rage and flagged and that there was a serious risk of a massacre if there was a ground assault in Rafa. Even the UK and this is rare, even the UK is starting to take note of Israel's breaches of international law. In the House of Lords, British Foreign Secretary David Cameron said this about Israel's legal responsibilities. As they are the occupying power in Gaza, that they have to make sure that humanitarian aid, that food and water and shelter are available to people in Gaza, because if they don't do that, that would be a breach of international humanitarian law as well. 
I think that's one of the first times I've heard a British government minister refer to Israel as an occupying power. Obviously it is in international law, it is. Under any common understanding of the word it is, but it's, you know, often sort of elided in national discussions. Um, while the international wrangling continues, Palestinians on the ground in Gaza continue to suffer devastating consequences of inaction, as this Sky News report shows. On the second floor, there's a five-year-old boy who was hit by a grenade. A fragment passed through his eye and lodged in his brain. But that's just part of Moomin's story. His brother and sister watched it all. It was lunchtime. We were sitting down. 11-year-old Ahmed Hatab was in the kitchen when Israeli soldiers broke into the family home. They raided our house and they shot our mum and dad. Then they started shooting at us. His sister, Buthena, is nine. We went to another room, hiding from the soldiers. They started banging on the door, and then they blew it up. Soldiers shooting at children. Right, we're always told, oh, any child who dies must have been used by Hamas as a human shield. These are, these are children who, in their own home, were shot by Israeli soldiers, their parents killed. As I say, the parents of those children did not survive. Sky put their story to the IDF, but the IDF declined to comment. All these atrocities are, of course, sponsored by Israel's allies, including its main diplomatic and financial backer. Um, that's the United States, of course. And despite words of criticism earlier in the week, um, the US are set to give Israel the green light for a ground assault in Rafah. And this is from Politico. The Biden administration is not planning to punish Israel if it launches a military campaign in Rafah without ensuring civilian safety, they say. Um, free US officials granted anonymity to detail internal discussions told Natsek Daily no reprimand plans are in the works, meaning Israeli forces could enter the city and harm civilians without facing American consequences. More than half of the enclave's 2.3 million population has fled to Rafah, putting them in clear danger whenever the operation moves beyond the bombing phase. The private briefings to Politico follows a week of increasingly pathetic public statements from White House officials. On Monday, State Department spokesperson Matt Miller was grilled by AP's Matt Lee. What levers have you used? Uh, so we have used diplomatic effort, uh, levers. The secretary that has... Means the, that, that means the secretary <coughs> and the president and you and Kirby and whoever else standing we, up and saying wagging your finger and saying that that's not really leverage. Uh, I mean, we have engaged with them on a um, uh, at a multitude of levels at this uh, administration. And and as I the, kind of you look at the list that we just went through with Humera, we have seen them take steps at our urging that have had real yeah, have had real urging. tangible but impact, what, what but, levers, but they have not been enough. Uh, but what levers have you actually used? Uh, I, I think the, that when the United States of America uh, stands up and says something publicly, it matters. But 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 you haven't. That's a lever, and and but, we and but, we and but you haven't said and, no. And we but that to there my point, any consequences to but, my uh, to my point, we in have terms seen of money or military assistance, we, right? But but we have seen because of the uh, policies we have pursued, we have seen improvements along these specific areas. Um, oh, okay, we have fine. seen tangible improvements. Again, okay, but not I'm the just asking that, you what, but what I, leverage have you used? But also, I I. I, I 
What there, leverage have you brought I, to bear? I just went through it. What think, have you gone? I think the what, words of the to, President to, of the United States, the words of the Secretary of State matter. And we have seen, hold on, we over seen, the top. And we have seen, leverage? and we have seen the government of Israel respond to it, not always in the way that we want, not always to the degree that we want or to the level that we want, but the. The, our interventions, we believe, have had an impact, and we will continue to pursue them because we believe, okay. we well, believe look, they do. I, I mean, there's two ways of looking at statements like that. I mean, either you can see it as incredibly pathetic, right? So pathetic in the sense that the United States is giving this government shed loads of cash, shed loads of arms. They're enabling everything it does, and then they ask it to sort of behave in a slightly different way, um, and it doesn't. You know, so why don't why doesn't the U.S. stand up for itself? It's giving all of these weapons to this country. Surely it can. Um, impose some proper influence on how those weapons are used beyond making sort of milquetoast statements about Israel's invasion of Gaza being a little bit over the top, right? That's one interpretation. The other is that there's a much more deep cynicism going on here, which is that the United States, in reality, doesn't give a damn about Palestinians in Gaza, doesn't give a damn how Israel uses the weapons that have been sent from Washington, right? Doesn't give a damn. But it wants to go out and sort of speak to the world and say, oh, we asked nicely. Uh, Joe Biden said it's a bit over the top. Da, 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 da. Oh, we don't want them to go into Rafa um, unless they can work out how to sort of protect the civilians. Oh, whoops, they did it anyway. Oh, no consequences, right? If you are arming the criminal and you tell them that whatever you do with those weapons, we're going to keep giving you more, you are just as complicit as the criminal, right? And, and I see everything that we're hearing um, from the Americans as, as basically... One part pathetic, but more seriously, um, deeply, deeply cynical, sinister even, right? Um, we've got another clip for you because the following day, National Security Spokesperson John Kirby um, gave an answer that was humiliating, really, in an entirely different way. My colleague, I think it was Nadia, asked a few minutes ago uh, about the civilian casualties, and you said Israel has been receptive to our concerns. And for months, we have heard people at that podium talk about the civilian death toll was too high. It was too high, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000. Around 28,000 people have been killed. What does the White House base the assessment that Israel is receptive to its concern? As I said, we have seen them take actions, sometimes actions that, that even I'm not sure our own military would take uh, in terms of informing civilian populations ahead of operations where to go, where not to go. Um, they have taken steps. I mean, if, if defending Israel leads the United States to suddenly become a bit more honest about its role in the world, I suppose that could be one side benefit of this atrocity, right? Are we next going to see um, Kirby stand up and say, oh, yeah, it might be illegal what they've done in Gaza, but, you know, we, we invaded Iraq, right? A million people died from that one. Uh, so, yeah, you know, they killed, they, they killed 30,000 people. It seems to be completely against the law. They're using our weapons. But, I mean, we also used our weapons when we committed the atrocities we committed, right? So stop looking at Israel. We're all guilty. It's a bit like Donald Trump, wasn't it? He said, you think we're so innocent? Which was true. It's one of the true things he said, right? The United States are not innocent when it comes to this. But for some reason now, this is, this is going so far that they're, uh, you know, uh, the main way um, they distract from Israel's atrocities is, is to sort of point at things, you know, that, that a Palestinian or Palestinian code is saying, oh, UNRWA is full of Hamas. Um, that's what we saw after the ICJ ruling. Now they're saying, actually, you know, you think Israel are bad? Look at us. We're, we're even worse. Dahlia, I mean, we, we, we've shown throughout this whole war quite a few clips of, of, of both those White House spokespeople because, you know, I mean, fair enough, the American system does seem fairly open. You have all these journalists sort of challenging them. But I think what those journalists are very able to do is show the complete incoherence 
of America's public position on this. I mean, it might make sense privately. If privately they think we don't care about the death of all these Palestinians, it's completely coherent. But their public statements on this just don't make any sense. Obviously, for all the reasons that you've outlined, what's happening in Rafah is a complete horror show. It's disgusting to see Blinken standing up there and saying, you know, they're being told where is safe to go. Uh, well, they've all been told to go to Rafah, which is, by the way, a part of Gaza, which is itself is very tiny. It's a small segment of Gaza that, you know, in 2018, I think it was, held 171,000 people and is now being expected to be a safe place for 1.5 million people. And of course, it's not a safe place because they are being attacked left, right and center. Um, but this is why, you know, the genocide lens is so important. And the genocide lens is the thing that that conveys really what is going on here. Because if genocide is the aim, uh, or if ethnic cleansing is the aim, then why would you have genuinely safe zones? You know, if your aim, um, as the Israeli state has, in my view, made pretty clear, is to empty the Gaza Strip of Palestinian life, um, be it through killing them all or through forced displacement, then why why would you be invested in maintaining a safe zone? Of course, there's no safe zone because genocide is the is the objective. Um, I think when it comes to the way that the US is self-narrativizing when it comes to, to what's happening right now, look, I think it's become really clear that this kind of narrative that the US has used to justify its ongoing and enduring decades-long support of Israel uh, is showing itself to be false. You know, there's this idea that, look, the Arabs, this Arab region is, is full of savages, it's full of barbarians, it's full of people who don't understand the meaning of democracy, it's people who are regressive and violent, and Israel has been coded as a representative of so-called Western values in this barbaric Eastern region. You know, we see this in the fact that, like, for example, Israel is, I mean, I know it sounds silly, but it is part of the political project, but Israel is a contender in Eurovision. It's not in Europe, but it's a way of showing that there's this kind of idea that you have the West, which represents liberalism, human rights, rules-based order, democracy, rule of law versus the rest, which is barbaric and brown and black and whatever. Um, and I think that for a lot of, I mean, we know that, you know, we might know that, that it was never this kind of clash of civilizations. That's not the basis of the alliance between the US and Israel. But I do think that particularly within the US, a lot of even, you know, well-meaning liberals um, really did buy that story and really did believe that. And I think there might be some kind of crisis of identity taking place where suddenly it's becoming clear. I mean, it shouldn't have taken this long to become clear, but it's becoming clear. And they're sort of waiting for the US government to sort of say, well, now you have violated our values so much um, that we're willing to step in. But what you have to understand is what Israel is doing now securing the interests of the Western hegemony is the work or it is this aligned value with the US. This is actually what the shared value is. This material interest 
in colonizing this part of the world. Because this part of the world, you know, the Arab world, the Middle East, whatever, it's a really strategically and geopolitically important part of the world. You know, it's important for natural resource reasons. It's an oil-rich um, part of the world. It's also important geographically and logistically. It's the part of the world that connects, you know, Europe, Asia, and Africa. It's a very, very important node in the global economy. Um, and in that context, it is the worst nightmare of the colonial power, the global hegemon, the US and also Europe, for that part of the world to have sovereignty. And Palestinian sovereignty is almost like a metaphor for broader sovereignty in the region. This is why, you know, Palestinian liberation has always been at the beating heart of pan-Arabism and anti-colonial struggles in the region generally and historically is because what's happened, the dynamic between Israel and Palestine is the sharpest edge of the very same process that happens all throughout the region. And so the sooner we can understand that the shared values are not the values of you know, symbolism and justice and freedom and all of this. And so there's not going to be a point at which Israel violates those values so much that it kicks the US into action. The shared values is the necessity to secure the US interests in that region. And the, Israel is the main, the main entity that does that. And so this is why we're not seeing, I think, the kind of reaction that I think a lot of even well-meaning liberals in the West were kind of expecting. They were expecting that there was a point at which it could go too far, that even for show, um, there would have to be a stop to this. There would have to be a point at which serious leverage was used. But we have to remember, you know, this is the same part of the world that, that dropped an atomic bomb. So we can't really believe that this is kind of the claims on which we can this is not going to be the final way route out of this, this kind of appeal to surely this is a violation of these values. Those values are now nakedly irrelevant um, when it comes to whether, you know, securing U.S. interests abroad. I think where this might be tricky for Biden is that there's an election coming. It's very soon. There are a lot of those well-meaning liberals in the U.S. who might have won, at one point enthusiastically voted for him over the seeming evil and chaos of Donald Trump, who ma now may not be as galvanized to do so. Um, but frankly, I don't think that the lives and livelihoods of millions of Palestinians should be the price that we have to pay for people to wake up in the West. I think that, you know, I don't think that it's, it's a fair exchange, but I do wonder um, when we'll see it when the elections come, to what extent that kind of clash of civilizations narrative um, that has upheld this alliance for so long um, has really managed to withstand the 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 viciousness and the 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 the, the extremely visible um, violence and ruthlessness of colonialism that we have seen over the past few months that has nonetheless um, kind of been. The, the underlying logic of, of the, the global sort of order for, for a very long time now, as long as colonialism has existed. Obviously, the alternative people have is Donald Trump, who won't be you know, any more of a friend of the Palestinians. But I think you're exactly right that what this will do is probably make a lot of people just not bother to vote because it's, it's really difficult to go out and vote for someone who you think is implicated in a genocide, right? difficult thing to do. I'm not saying I would judge anyone for voting for Joe Biden when you've got Donald Trump as your alternative, but I also wouldn't judge them for for staying at home.
Let's move to our next story on a similar topic. Earlier this week, an appeals court in the Netherlands ordered the Dutch government to stop exporting military parts to Israel. Human rights groups who brought the case argued that it was illegal for the Netherlands to supply the F-35 jet plane parts to Israel while it bombs civilians in Gaza, a breach of international humanitarian law. And the appeals court agreed, saying, quote, It is undeniable that there is a clear risk the exported F-35 parts are used in serious violations of international humanitarian law. The court has ordered the Dutch government to stop all exports of the parts to Israel within seven days. Um, The Netherlands affiliate of Oxfam was one of the groups that brought the case. Speaking to Al Jazeera, their director highlighted the importance of the win. I think it's very significant and I'm, I'm happy that the court was so clear also in its, uh, in its ruling uh, today. Uh, I'm hopeful that it will change the behaviors of my own government, the Dutch government, and it must because they need to obey by this uh, ruling. I also hope that it's a turning point that governments in Europe or elsewhere who have supported Israel so far uh, will look themselves in the mirror and realize that they are in fact um, co-responsible or even complicit of the violations taking place uh, in Gaza as we speak, basically. The Dutch government has now said it will appeal the ruling in the country's Supreme Court, saying this. In the government's view, the distribution of American F-35 parts is not unlawful. The government believes it is up to the state to determine its foreign policy. The government is lodging an appeal in cassation because it believes the Court of Appeal did not take sufficient account of this. In the meantime, the government will consult with international partners within the F-35 program very soon in order to secure the Netherlands' role within the program. The government will do everything it can to convince allies and partners that the Netherlands remains a reliable partner in the F-35 project and in European and international defence cooperation. So that's the Dutch government essentially um, trying to reassure the international arms industry that despite this hiccup, it's still open um, for the bombs and bullets business. Right. Well, don't, don't worry, our courts aren't so worried about human rights that we can't still export uh, these parts wherever you want them exported to. And the Dutch case is important because the court's reasoning could be applied more widely. Every country in the EU is a signatory to what's called the EU Common Position on Arms Exports. It means a state must deny an export license for military components to any state where, quote, there is a clear risk that the military technology or equipment to be exported might be used in the commission of serious violations of international humanitarian law. I would say that risk definitely applies when it comes to Gaza right now. And the Dutch court found that such a risk exists with Israel citing UN special special rapporteur reports, civilian casualty figures, and the destruction of civilian infrastructure. And um, what does this mean for for the UK? Though we're obviously sending lots of arms to Israel, um, we're obviously not in the EU anymore, but we do have our own rules for arms export. So they're called the Strategic Export Licensing Criteria. Um, they were brought in by the Tories in 2021 as a replacement for the EU rules, so as part of, of Brexit. Um, but the replacement was weaker than the original EU rule. So that makes it easier for us to send arms to violent regimes. However, um, our guidelines do still contain this clause. Having assessed the recipient country's attitudes towards relevant principles established by international humanitarian rights instruments, the government will not grant a license if it determines there is a clear risk that the items might be used to commit or facilitate a serious violation of international humanitarian law. 
Palestinian rights organisation Al-Haq, along with Global Legal Action Network, are currently taking the UK government to court over its arms trade with Israel. Earlier today, I spoke to Al-Haq's legal researcher and advocacy officer Ahmed Abufal. I began by asking him about the case he's helping to bring against the UK government. We're still um, at the early stage. I can't comment a lot in this case, but we hope that it will be successful and the court will order the British government to stop uh, exporting arms uh, to Israel. The British government, like um, uh, all governments around the world, are under the legal obligation not to aid and abet the commission uh, of alleged crimes and international humanitarian law uh, violations, specifically after the ICJ uh, ruling that there is a plausible uh, case for genocide, this invokes the positive obligations of these states to do everything in their power, not to uh, allow these actions to 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 go further, so to prevent uh, genocide from happening. Unfortunately, what the British government is doing is the absolute opposite to that. It continues to provide um, uh, weapons to uh, Israel, uh, recognizing that Israel is actually violating international humanitarian law, at least in relation to the announced attack on Rafah. We heard what um, David Cameron said uh, and several others. So in a way, what the British government is saying, like the US government, Israel is violating IHL, but we will continue to send it with. And so in that sense, I think the UK government, like the US government, have blood of Palestinian children uh, on their hands. Uh, they have not only a legal responsibility, but a moral one. And in, in, in relation to Palestine, a historical responsibility not to allow further commission of crimes against the Palestinian civilians in Gaza. As far as I understand it, the, the case in, in the Netherlands and the case you're bringing in the UK, um, they relate to national law. So, so laws or EU law or national law about exporting arms um, if they're going to be used to, you know, to, to breach um, humanitarian law. Um, obviously, there is a big international case um, still continuing the International Court of Justice. I mean, to what extent are these two things connected? Are we beginning to see now um, the effects of the International Court of Justice ruling being reflected in, in national courts where sort of judges around the world are sort of waking up and saying, oh, well, if the International Court of Justice says this, we're going to have to start getting a bit tougher. Absolutely. There, there, there is um, a connection there. I think the um, a court uh, ruling, an international court ruling like that of the ICJ, in my view, uh, is worth what the uh, political sphere is, um, is willing to implement or how it's willing to implement it. In this case, we have the Security Council and the uh, U.S. veto all along. But in, in relation to domestic jurisdictions, it could be uh, utilized to start cases against um, uh, governments that are complicit in uh, the genocide that is uh, unfolding in the Gaza Strip. We, we've seen this in the case in California, which is a case we took together with the Center for Constitutional Rights which was representing the Palestinian organizations, that is Al-Haq and um, Defense for Children International, the Palestine branch, and several plaintiffs. Uh, and this case was against Biden, Blinken, and Austin for their complicity in genocide and their failure to prevent genocide. Obviously, the case uh, was started before the ICJ ruling. Um, and as a matter of fact, the ICJ ruling uh, was announced on the day of the trial, in the morning. And still, it was used in the trial, and the judge even cited that in his ruling, mentioning that the court decided 
there is a plausible case for genocide. The American judge agreed with that conclusion, but basically said that his hands are tied, that he doesn't have jurisdiction to rule on a policy matter that, that is for the um, executive uh, branch. So the same thing, I think, was also argued in the Dutch case. Um, in the Dutch ruling, there is reference to the ICJ advisory opinion on the uh, construction of the wall of 2004. Um, which is also a very important advisor opinion. So you see uh, these ICJ rulings, whether advisory or contentious cases, are not only a record of history, but also a legal precedent that could be relied on even after decades. We're talking about the Dutch court that issued uh, a decision uh, a few days ago and citing an advisor opinion from two 2004. Uh, in the US, it, it cited the um, uh, South African case against um, against Israel. Uh, there are several other cases uh, that are on the way, as you said, our case um, in the UK, uh, I'm aware, and we're supporting other cases, including in Norway and Australia and many other countries. And the ICJ ruling is being used uh, in all of these uh, cases. Uh, it, is not, uh, it's not, it is not a simple matter when um, the top court of the world, of the UN system, is saying Israel is plausibly committing genocide. This should have, uh, um, um, in a way, alerted all of these states to take immediate actions. The very fact that uh, the, the actions taken still don't live up to the seriousness of this decision, uh, it just shows the complicity um, uh, of, of these uh, governments, especially in the West, and the crimes committed against the Palestinians. That's interesting. So I know people have been concerned that, you know, the International Court of Justice to properly implement its its measures or create consequences for states. The Security Council has to agree to that. And obviously the United States have a block, have a veto on the Security Council. But you're saying even without agreement from the Security Council, this ruling will have implications which filter out into sort of national courts around the world. Um, I want to talk a bit more about the ICJ because the South Africans are applying um, to have another hearing, essentially, um, in The Hague. They're arguing that Israel's assault on Rafa is a breach of the preliminary measures um, that the ICJ announced at the end of January. And we've got a clip of the South African Minister of International Relations, Naledia Pandor, explaining um, South Africa's new case. South Africa is totally horrified at what is happening, continuing to happen to the people of Gaza and the West Bank and now Rafa. Uh, we believe this confirms the uh, allegation we've tabled uh, before the ICJ that uh, genocide is underway in the Palestinian territories, in the occupied uh, territories. And clearly, the actions of the Israeli government prove that what we have said is actually accurate. What is of great concern is that the world is allowing Israel to ignore the uh, rulings of the International Court of Justice, and no one is taking any measure to place a force in Palestine that would be a peace enforcement force to protect the innocent civilians who have caused no harm whatsoever to Israel. Can I just get you to sort of comment on the significance of this new case um, that the South Africans are bringing to the ICJ with particular respect to um, the, the invasion of, of Rafa? I think, first of all, it's important to clarify, this is not a new, uh, uh, a new case. South Africa specifically used uh, a specific provision in the uh, rules of the court, that is Article 
paragraph uh, one uh, because it didn't want a hearing and it didn't want uh, to the data process. So it's important to note Israel, uh, South Africa could have asked the court several things. First of all, pursuant to Article 75, paragraph uh, three of the rules, South Africa could have requested the indication of a new provisional measures, but South Africa didn't do that because that would require uh, a hearing. In accordance with Article 74, paragraph four, the, the South African government could have asked uh, the court to call upon the parties to uh, enable uh, the order, but it didn't do that. Perhaps it was concerned of uh, of delay. It could have also asked the the president of the court to execute his uh, his powers, which uh, would which would not necessarily necessitate a hearing, but it might take long. So it asked this specific ask from the court to act proporium motu, so on its own initiative, because of the uh, urgency. So the court is not obliged to listen to, to South Africa. The court has the discretion to decide whether to act or not. As a matter of fact, um, uh, the court has never acted uh, on this provision without um, uh, uh, a request by state. The only, the only time, actually, the court has used this provision uh, asking Propora Motoso and its own initiative was in one case before between Germany and uh, and the U.S. because there was a, a German uh, counselor on a death row and, as a matter of fact, the U.S. executed him on the same day. But what, what I'm trying to say here is that the South African government chose this particular provision because of the urgency, because the court can order uh, what it wants without holding a hearing. It could have, I think, uh, the, the thinking of the South African uh, team could have uh, been in uh, along these lines. That this is the, uh, in a way, the fastest option where the court uh, could uh, decide on this matter. So this is not a new proceeding. The court will have to decide on this, um, and we'll see what uh, what the court will uh, uh, will say. The court has the opportunity actually to order new provision measures it did not order, or maybe modi- I don't know, modify some of the orders or indicate new um, uh, provisional measures. Let's move on. I'm getting some deja vu because Britain is going into full-blown moral panic mode about trumped-up charges of anti-Semitism. This was the opening of ITV's News at 10 on Tuesday night. Chaos in the Labour Party. After one candidate was suspended for his comments on Israel, another tonight followed suit. Further information came to light yesterday calling for decisive action. So I took decisive action. After all the storm of controversy over anti-Semitism in the party under Jeremy Corbyn, this is a gravely serious issue for the new Labour leader himself. Now, you wouldn't guess from that intro that the second guy who's been suspended, Graham Jones, was only found to have said effing Israel and stated that Britons who go and join the IDF should be locked up. Now, both of those are perfectly reasonable, has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with racism of any kind. Um, You also wouldn't have guessed from that introduction with the very dramatic background music that everyone involved in this is a factional enemy of Jeremy Corbyn. He's brought in for some reason. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn, oh, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. These are all people who hated Jeremy Corbyn. Finally, I don't know if you noticed, but it's a little odd to call Starmer Labour's new leader, right? So we say, all of this trouble under Jeremy Corbyn, under its new leader, Keir Starmer, it's still going on. He's been in charge for four years, right? The idea that Keir Starmer is Labour's 
new leader seems a bit far-fetched for me. But the media parts of the Labour right and the pro-Israel lobby have smelled blood, and the Jewish Labour movement has already called for the suspension of any candidate or councillor who was even present in the meeting where Azhar Ali made his comments about October the 7th. A bit McCarthy, I think. Um, the Telegraph as well have made their intentions clear. So they say this, Sakir will come under further pressure to investigate five more MPs and candidates who the Telegraph can reveal have been involved in controversies over Israel. Two shadow cabinet ministers, Fangam Debonair and Shabana Mahmood, are among those to have expressed contentious views on Gaza, while Afzal Khan, a former shadow minister, previously compared the Israeli government to Nazis. Zara Sultana, the left-wing MP, liked an anti-Israel social media post last month, while a councillor running in Southampton allegedly attended a pro-Palestine rally in November. Let's look at these allegations again, right? So the people who are facing, you know, there's these calls. Keir Starmer's under further pressure to investigate these people. So two shadow cabinet ministers expressed contentious views on Gaza. The hell is a contentious view on Gaza? I think a contentious view on Gaza would be that we should continue selling arms to a government which is using them for genocide lens. That, to me, should be fairly contentious. I, I don't know what they mean by contentious here. I haven't heard anything that Fangam Debonair or Shabana Mahmood have said it that seems particularly contentious. I mean, they've been marginally more critical of Israel than the Labour leadership. That seems to be enough to be landed in this position by the Telegraph. And then Zara Sultana liked an anti-Israel social media post last month. She liked an anti-Israel social media post. Israel has been found by the International Court of Justice to be potentially carrying out a genocide in Gaza. And liking a post critical of Israel now should get you thrown out of mainstream politics. Completely bizarre. And a councillor running in Southampton, I love this word, a councillor running in Southampton allegedly attended a pro-Palestine rally in November. Allegedly. Oh, he's alleged to have attended a pro-Palestine rally. It's like a crime, something really bad. You know, he, He's allegedly been a sexual harasser in the office or whatever. He allegedly attended a pro-Palestine rally in November. Dahlia, um, I, I, I've heard allegations that you've attended um, pro-Palestine rallies and that you might have liked um, anti-Israel social media tweets. And I bet you've got a lot of contentious views um, when it comes to Gaza. I mean, what, what the hell is going on here? My dreams of standing as, you know, a Labour MP have been shattered. Until now, they were pristine. It's a true upside down world when, as you said, a political party, even like even take away the fact that the Labour Party is supposed to be like a progressive or like centre left party, just any political party thinking that it's appropriate to suspend me members, to suspend representatives because they are critical of a government that is has been found, as you said, to be plausibly committing genocide. I mean, when you lay it out like that, it is completely indefensible and it's completely obscene. I think because often, you know, we talk about Keir Starmer being, you know, a careerist and being very sort of cynical. But I think sometimes we we assume that because he's very careerist and because he's very cynical and because he doesn't have a backbone or principles, that that somehow makes him a really good politician. He's actually not a good politician because I don't understand what the political gain of continually rehashing this 
this thing that they say they want to put into the past of the Labour Party at the expense of so much of their base. I mean, at this point, it's like, is a single Muslim MP going to be able to survive the Keir Starmer era? Like, it is a fact that for a lot of Muslim people, a lot of people from the Middle East, and actually a lot of people around the world who don't have a specific reason to be have a really vested interest in turning a blind eye to what Israel is doing right now, will share the sentiments of someone who is critical of Israel. And so it's like, what kind of base are you building? Like, what kind of power are you building? Even if you were just the most cynical person in the world and all you cared about was building your own career and winning an election and staying in power, because let's not forget, you know, winning an election is not the same as as actually holding political power. You, you win the election and then you have to convince the, pe- the people that you still deserve to be in power. It's not, it's not functional if you are you know, extremely unpopular for the entire, entirety of your tenure. I don't think that's what Keir Starmer is, wants to do. And that's not the politically savvy thing to do. But the fact that he has managed to set himself this kind of bizarre benchmark, which forces him to cannibalize his own party beyond even just the, you know, the Corbynite faction, which is a significant part of the the party's base. But even he's going beyond that, even to, to, as you said, go for people who have never been associated with Corbyn, who would consider themselves to be anti-Corbyn. And yet the, the benchmark he set himself is so unstrategic and is so broad and but poorly thought out and reactive that it's almost like all you've done is just lose segments of your base rather than really significantly gain ground with any new bases which is what someone who is politically savvy would be doing and i think it speaks volumes that you know this is a man who hasn't even governed for a single day as prime minister and he is standing against one of the most unpopular parties and unpopular prime ministers of in recent history how can Keir Starmer still manage to be doing such a bad job of getting people on his side? It, like his, his ratings are very poor. 47% of people think he's doing a bad job. 15% don't know. Only the rest of them think he's doing a good job. And when it comes to his vote amongst the, the amongst Muslim voters, which are a significant part of, of, um, of, the Labour Party's base, that has plummeted from 80% to the low 60s. So for me, what what, what I find so in, like intriguing is for someone who has no principles and for someone who's willing to say whatever he needs to say to get ahead or to convince the person in front of him, how is he still doing such a bad job of keeping even the bare bones of his base together? I mean, it doesn't bode well for what, even from his perspective, for what a Labour Party, Labour, um, Labour in power, you know, Labour Party being in power will look like. I can't see how he's going to be able to actually hold a coalition together long enough to even st- have wield power in any kind of meaningful form. So even if you put aside the significant moral and political differences that perhaps you and I might have with Keir Starmer, from a self-interested position, it makes no sense. Which brings me to the conclusion that. Not only do you not have a backbone, not only do you not have a principles, but you don't even have a sense of basic political strategy. So you basically have nothing um, when it comes to something to offer the Labour Party or the British people at large. One of the things people say has been damaging for Keir Starmer this week is him seeing uncertain about what he wants and what he should 
do, a lot of divvering. Ed Balls, though, in contrast, he's former Shadow Chancellor and now GMB host. He knows exactly what he thinks. As Ali said yeah. a terrible thing. Terrible. Well, the Jewish and media was bit was... Thing, yeah. and that's what he's been dealt with. Yeah. Graham Jones, I know him really well, yeah. was an MP. Yeah. He is not a Corbynite. No. Not hard left. Absolutely not nor anti... The, nor was the Rocha candidate who's been... Absolutely not anti-Israel. Yeah. Absolutely not anti-Israel. Right. In fact, if anything, on the other side of that... Um, argument, very, very deeply embedded and knowledgeable about the military. Right. I think what had happened was he and Azraeli had been told to go to a meeting to reassure the community that they were being listened to. Um, but uh, I don't think he was intending to send those kind of anti-Semitic messages at all. You could all imagine, say, kind of expletive America, expletive France. Um, the thing he said um, about the military is true. I think it was extremely unwise. Mm. But to describe him yeah. or what he said as anti-Semitic, I think is untrue. That's why I th they're not even hiding it. That argument, right? There was no, there was no discussion about what was said. I mean, very briefly at the end. But the key point there. Let's get some facts straight. He said he's my friend. Oh, that was a good one. He's not left wing. He likes the military. He likes Israel, and therefore he shouldn't have been suspended. Right. That's the argument. A little addendum at the end. Oh, and by the way, what he said wasn't anti-Semitic. Right? The key issue, he's not left-wing, he's not a Corbynite, this was a mistake. Right? I, of course, agree Right, what Graham Jones said wasn't in any way anti-Semitic. I don't think he should have been suspended, but I would like some consistency here. In fact, I'm, you know, I'm somewhat grateful that Ed Balls was so explicit there um, when it came to the factional motivation of his defense of Graham Jones. But I don't think he's been so honest on other occasions. Let's look um, at how Ed Balls discussed two days earlier um, the suspensions of Andy McDonald and Kate Ossimore. Kate Ossimore in Edmonton in London and Andy McDonald in Middlesbrough have been suspended for, for saying things that, frankly, I didn't think they should have been sus suspended. I think Ossimore's was very tasteless. Uh, McDonald's, I don't think was, but anyway, but nevertheless, they've been suspended for what you would call lesser offences. But they've been, uh, but, uh, but they've been suspended for a very particular reason, yeah. yep. which is that Keir Starmer defined his leadership yeah. as clearing up anti-Semitism anti yeah. of the Jeremy Corbyn period. And then look so when it comes to Graham Jones, right, saying he hasn't said anything anti-Semitic, and by the way, he doesn't like Jeremy Corbyn. He's on the right of the party. He likes Israel. He likes the military. So it's all fine. When it's Kate Osamor under discussion, when it's Andy McDonald under discussion, the guest there has said what they've said wasn't anti-Semitic. Ed Balls hasn't seemed to have given sort of any sort of intellectual dispute of that. He isn't saying that what Andy McDonald said is anti-Semitic. He said, oh, oh, but the context here, the context is Keir Starmer has to be really tough on these people because he's trying to rid the party of any possible um, association with anti-Semitism. So very different, isn't it? how he speaks about people on the left of the party and how he speaks about people on the right of the party. And again, you know, if he was there as a representative for the Labour right, if they said, we've got Ed Balls on, um, he's a bit of a warrior for the Labour right, um, so he's going to be a partisan voice here. Um, you know, and then, you, then you've got a host who can skewer him and say, seems a little bit inconsistent the way you talked about Andy McDonald and Kate Osamore and now the way you're talking about Graham Jones, right? If, if there was someone to skewer him for that, fine. He's the goddamn host. Right, this factional actor within the Labour Party who's playing this role of, you know, oh, but don't, don't you think? I mean, Keir Starmer probably does have to be very tough on these people because of the association with anti-Semitism. You, know, you are there fighting factional battles. I mean, getting paid by ITV. Right, this is ridiculous, ridiculous. And I mean, the whole thing. I have to say, the whole thing is like 
going through the looking glass, right? You, you see people now, James O'Brien today on LBC, right? He's saying, you know what? Is what these people have said really anti-Semitic? Look, Boris Johnson, he goes through Boris Johnson's book published ages ago. Well, some of the things Boris Johnson has said seem a lot more anti-Semitic than anything these Labour politicians have said. That book was published a long time ago. You could have said that in 2019, right? But he happens to like Keir Starmer. He didn't like Jeremy Corbyn. So when it was Jeremy Corbyn, oh, there's no smoke without fire. If people are calling it anti-Semitic, there must be something going on. Now it's Keir Starmer. And I mean, as I say, we are seeing this ridiculous moral panic. But some people, you know, the James O'Briens of the world, are sit there saying, you know what? It's not always the case that there isn't no smoke without fire. Sometimes things do get blown out of proportion. And maybe that's happening here. Maybe that's been happening for the past five years. Well, 10 years, I suppose. God, getting old, aren't we? 2024, it all started in 2015. This will continue. I don't celebrate the suspension of these people for these warped reasons because I don't back the anti-Semitism moral panic. Um, but pff, I'm not here to, to cry or grieve if Keir Starmer gets skewered. Final story. It's Valentine's Day, meaning many couples who could afford it will be heading to restaurants to get fleeced by candlelight. Others, though, will be staying at home, perhaps enjoying a romantic takeaway for two. Except for one night only, you might have to go and pick it up yourself. Those were food delivery couriers in London out on strike tonight. Um, they're amongst the thousands of food delivery couriers across Britain walking out over long hours, precarious work and pay that's plummeted during the cost of living crisis. They include workers for gig economy platforms Uber Eats, Just Eat, Deliveroo and Stuart, which I'd never heard of. And they join similar actions taking place in the US and Canada. Now, one of those workers writing anonymously for The Guardian said this about their pay. A recent report looked at pay in the sector and found the vast majority of platforms couldn't provide evidence that workers' gross pay was at least the minimum wage after costs. I tried to do free orders an hour and average about £10 before costs. Sometimes I make less, more like £7. Other riders who are less experienced or don't have accounts with all the apps that I do make even less. The strike has been organised by grassroots group Delivery Job UK, and because delivery couriers are classed as self-employed, they aren't entitled to the minimum wage. While Delivery says, quote, every rider is guaranteed to urge the national minimum wage plus vehicle costs. Um, there's a massive loophole, though, um, that companies can exploit when it comes to the minimum wage because they only pay, or at least when it comes to sort of saying they pay the minimum wage, is that they only pay couriers when they're on an order and not while they're waiting for one. Companies have also been driving down their rates of pay, with some now being, or some riders now being paid, as little as £2.80 per delivery. Um, one of the Delivery Job UK's organisers told Navarra Media this, Couriers tell me, I used to work for eight hours, but now I have to work for 11 hours. Or they'll say, I used to work for five days, and now I have to work six and a half. This affects people's livelihoods, it affects their families, it affects their relationships. I mean, of course it would if you're working 11 hours a day and or six and a half days a week. Um, Delivery Job UK is demanding platforms pay drivers £5 per delivery. They also want additional pay for bank holidays, bad weather, and Sunday working. And they're asking the platforms to provide riders with food bags and jackets instead of riders having to buy them themselves. I'm joined now by Navarra Media's Labour Movement correspondent, Polly Smythe. Um, Polly, can you tell me how many people are involved in this strike? 
So the strike's unfolding literally as we speak. I mean, we're based in Bermondsey and uh, there's a picket right around the corner. Um, so the first strike action uh, that happened on the 2nd of February had around 3,000 people, but today's should be much bigger. That's because they've had time to organize since the first strike action. Uh, you know, word has spread both via WhatsApp groups and social media, which Delivery Jobs UK are making great use of, but also just through word of mouth. I mean, you know, if you think about a high street, you know, you think about a McDonald's, you see big groups of couriers stood outside, you know, waiting for orders. People talk to one another. Um, and so this strike could be much bigger. It could be possibly one of the biggest strikes that the gig economy sector has seen in the UK. And it's not just confined to London. Uh, you know, it's the strikes taking place in, in Blackpool, um, you know, in the West Midlands, in Peterborough. Uh, so it could be really big. I've just Googled how many riders Deliveroo say they have. They say they've got 50,000 self-employed riders. Now, I'm, they might well be inflating that. I have no idea. Um, but, I mean, is this a significant proportion of the workforce who will be striking? And I suppose, you know, the question some of our viewers might be wondering, um, will they be able to order a, a Deliveroo this evening? Whether or not, um, you know, everyone's striking... When there's a picket line, you know, those uh, that picket line can be enforced quite strongly. And so, you know, if you turn up and say, uh, oh, I'm here to collect, you know, uh, so-and-so's uh, steak and chips, romantic dinner for two, uh, you know, I'm sure that the workers on the picket line will say, hang on a minute, actually, uh, you can't cross and, you know, we're doing this for the benefit of everybody. So even if the proportion of people who are striking uh, isn't, you know, uh, massive in proportion to deliveries workforce, the proportion of people who won't be able to work well, you know, will be quite high. And yeah, we saw on February 2nd, you know, um, videos of McDonald's orders piling up, um, you know, the the rate that Deliveroo was offering riders to, um, you know, to accept orders was ridiculously high. You know, people could earn kind of as much as they might order, uh, they might earn in one day, um, you know, in, in one trip. Um, and so, Hopefully, people won't be able to, or, you know, access food on Valentine's Day. And you know, and if you were tempted to order food today, then I would say don't, you know, because you are crossing a digital picket line. And there's nothing more romantic than getting out onto the street, having a chat with riders, speaking to them, asking them about their working conditions. I think you know that's the the true spirit of a of Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, very well. But um, I assume, I mean, I, I assume they're not going to be physically stopping riders like going to McDonald's to pick up orders, right? I mean, I, I imagine it's more of a persuasive strategy they'd be they'd be taking on. They'll be explaining their cause and saying, um, you know, rates have gotten really low. I know that the rates that you're being offered to pick this up now are really high, but that's not because Deliveroo or Uber Eats values you. That's because, uh, you know, that's because they're desperate. And uh, and so, you know, look at what we can achieve when we take action and that we're doing this for everybody. What I'm getting from what you're telling me is that, the, you know, what they get per delivery varies wildly, sort of depending on how many riders are in the area. Obviously, if lots of them are on strike, then maybe the fees will go up a little bit. And presumably, if lots of people are ordering at the same time, potentially, you know, on, on Valentine's night, uh, the rates will go up a little bit. They're striking about the minimum rate, like the, the floor. Is that the case? So the strikes over lots of things, one of them being that the minimum rate offered has really decreased. Um, and so, you know, it used to be that, um, you know, no order would would be below, uh, you know, let's say £4.15. And over the years, you know, the apps have steadily ground away at that, uh, which means that now, you know, the minimum rate that you might be paid for an offer, you know, um, the floor, for instance, is about £2.80. Um, and that's really nothing, you know, that's really not very much. And then not only that, um, you know, 
Deliveroo, Uber Eats, um, for them, there's an incentive to take on as many couriers as they can because, you know, they want to make sure that on a Saturday night or a Friday night when, when customer supply will be at its peak, that they can match it. But then they would have no responsibility to those couriers on, let's say, a Tuesday at 12 p.m. Uh, when, you know, there might not be as many orders. Um, and so they're happy to take on lots and lots of riders onto the platform just simply as kind of insurance almost. Um, and so it's about, not only is it about, you know, the rates that they're being offered, it's also about, you know, making sure that there's enough work to go around, not just bringing endless, you know, numbers of couriers onto the platforms, about working conditions, about safety. Um, there's, you know, there's loads of different aspects to the strike. I hadn't figured that. So sort of the the power of the the company vis-a-vis the workers is that when it's busy, they can just get a load of sort of part-time delivery riders, people who mainly, maybe only do it on a Friday and a, and a Saturday night. But then if you've got it as your full-time job, you're screwed because you don't actually get paid that much more on a Friday, but you do have to sit around for ages on a Tuesday afternoon and without delivering anything. I suppose, does this all relate to this idea of whether or not um, delivery and or Uber Eats or whoever uh, are classed as as workers, and I know there's been a sort of dispute in in court at the moment. Could you talk briefly about that? This is a really long running um, dispute which came to a head um, last year. So the Independent um, Workers for Great Britain, the, the IWGB uh, trade union, um, bought a case saying that they wanted to represent. Um, they want you know um, Deliveroo and Just Eat workers, um, and in order to do so those riders or couriers had to be classed as workers and not classed as self-employed. And so this court case, you know, moved through very slowly um, and it came to a conclusion last year where couriers were deemed to be self-employed. And the basis of that self-employment was the fact that they can substitute in other riders. And so, um, you know, if they were going to be coming to work on a Wednesday and they couldn't make it, another rider could be substituted in. Um, and on the basis of that, uh, which you know, um, the IWGB say was sort of cynically added by uh, Deliveroo, um, you know, in order to sort of circumnavigate the fact that these riders were workers and to say, oh no, they, you know, they can't be workers. They have to be self-employed because of this substitution clause. Um, and so, yeah, that, so the Supreme Court ruled that the um, couriers were not workers but were self-employed and that means that they don't have the right to um, collectively bargain with the apps and so that makes sense then why we see this kind of action pop up um you know kind of more informal wildcat grassroots organizing thank you polly navarro media's labor movement correspondent there you can find more of her work on navarromedia.com and there's also this article which is related to what we've been discussing. It's on Uber's admission that it uses algorithmic wage discrimination tracking data on drivers' movements to reduce their share of the fares they pick up. The link to that article is in the description box below. Struggled on that. Um, thank you, Dahlia, for joining me tonight. Thank you so much and happy Valentine's to all our listeners. Yeah, you, you enjoy your evening with your lovely bunch of roses. Um, Thank you all for tuning in. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.